The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Chris Kocheck, author of Any Insights Yet? Connect the dots, create new categories, transform your business. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection in with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Chris Kocheck to talk about his book, Any Insights Yet? Connect the Dots, Create New Categories, Transform Your Business, published by Yellowbird Press. Chris Kocheck is an author, speaker, and founder of Gallant, a creative branding firm in Austin, Texas, which has helped dozens of companies with brand overhauls, new product launches, and data-driven campaigns, resulting in triple-digit growth and national recognition. Before starting Gallant, Chris worked in advertising as a strategic planner in New York City and Austin, Texas, developing nationally recognized campaigns for Fortune 500 brands and highly respected nonprofits, including AARP, Lowe's Home Improvement, Hyatt Hotels, Ace Hardware, and John Deere. A frequent guest lecturer at the University of Texas at Austin, Chris is a regular contributor to Entrepreneur Magazine and is also the author of The Practical Pocket Guide to Account Planning. He is a graduate of the University of California, Los Angeles, home of the Fighting Bruins. And he earned a master's degree from the University of Texas at Austin, home of the Fighting Longhorns. And interesting fact, he worked as an AmeriCorps Ranger in Canyonlands National Park in Utah. Chris, congratulations on any insights yet, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being here. So what did you do as a, as a ranger at this national park? I had kind of a hybrid role. I um, I worked with uh, local schools uh, to teach kids about all kinds of different things uh, related to the outdoors and related to uh, technology and things like that. You know, what is a lever? What is a class one lever, class two, class three lever? Um, you know, what are various uh, roots and berries and things like that in the region that uh, people from long ago uh, survived on? Uh, that was part of my time. And then the other part of my time was uh, roving trails, issuing uh, backcountry uh, passes, uh, and doing a lot of hiking myself. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, when I uh, got out of college, I had a job where I was doing a lot of hiking, but it was in the U.S. Army. 
And ever since then, there's two things I never, ever want to do, and I haven't done them. One is go camping, and one is hiking. <laughs> I kind of got my fill. But that sounds like a wonderful uh, job, and I think there's probably some days in the agency business where you said, man, <laughs> I, could, I could really go for being in a national park right about now. Yeah, a little, little peace and quiet, little time to think and reflect. Uh, that sometimes happens. Yeah, yeah. So... Your book is about insights, which is probably one of the most misunderstood concepts, and I hope that in our conversation we're going to be able to clear things up. But I can't resist. I want to quote from the very beginning of the book on page uh, 8. You said, if you say that word one more time, sometimes when I'm in meetings, I like to play a game. I keep track of how many times the word insight gets used. One time I was in a meeting that lasted just under 60 minutes and the word was abused 72 times. No kidding. Uh, What's the insight here? Uh, Have we found any insights yet? Do we have enough insights in our presentation? Which of these are game-changing insights? I think we need some bigger insights. Where can we look to get more insights? Can you get me five more insights by end of day? If you are ever in the mood to test your sanity, you should try playing the game yourself. You'll be amazed how often you can reach a a new high score. There have been times during kickoff meetings after I've just barely learned the basics about the brand and the challenges they're facing when the client will casually turn to me and ask, so, any initial insights? Of course not. It's not as though I can pull out a magic wand and conjure up some insights with a flick of my wrist. But I can't say that. The stakes are too high, and I can't bring myself to say the word insight one more time. What I really want to do is quote Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. (laughs) But if I want to keep the client happy, I have to be more diplomatic than that. So usually I say, uh, not quite yet, but uh, this is a great start. It's tough because somewhere along the way, this word insight became to proliferate. Somehow in conference rooms and investor meetings, we ended up in a nuclear arms race of insights. It's probably because at some point, someone important said they had an insight, and from that point on, everyone else felt like they had to have one too. Lately, I've noticed that the word insight has found its way into a number of impressive-sounding job titles and department headings. There are teams of people who work in the Consumer Insights and Analytics Department. At some companies, there's a Head of Consumer Insights. Sometimes people even give themselves completely made-up job titles that sound really important, like Chief Insight Officer. But if so many people are in charge of insights, how come so many businesses and new product launches fail? If there are so many insights out there, how come there are so many bad creative campaigns? The truth is, it's because most people don't know what an insight actually is. That's why I decided to write this book. I hope you find it insightful and useful. So part one of the book is titled, What the Heck is an Insight? And Let's not answer that just yet. First, let's talk about what an insight is not, because I find that more helpful for framing what an insight is. And also, that's mercifully how you wrote <laughs> the first part of the book is about, let's talk about what's not uh, you know, an insight. So let's start with uh, a few of the things you talk about, which are not insights. What's the deal with airplane food? So... <laughs> Why is an observation like that from Jerry Seinfeld not an insight? Well, I'll tell you why it's not. Um, (laughs) So observations, they're powerful. They can be keen observations, but an observation is just a single thing. It's, It's one layer, whereas an insight 
is a multi-layered piece. Uh, so, you know, think of a, a seven layer, uh, you know, bean and cheese dip or a seven layer dip. It's got multiple layers to it. It's more complex. There are some going to be some nuance to it. Whereas an observation, hey, an observation's great. It can be powerful and it can, you know, take you to new and exciting places. But an insight's just not an observation. So it's connected to it, but it's not the same thing as just an insight. So I want to go back to uh, Jerry Seinfeld one more time. I saw a thing, actually, a study that said speaking in front of a crowd is considered the number one fear of the average person. I found that amazing. Number two was death. <laughs> death is number two? This means to the average person, if you have to be at a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. So on page 26, you write, in the era of big data, it's popular to use data points as synonyms for insights. In article after article and case study after award-winning case study, people will highlight an interesting statistic and call it an insight. <laughs> it's one of the main reasons why the word insight has proliferated. Data is everywhere, so insights must be everywhere, right? Wrong. Explain why an insight is not just a data point. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could, you could string together a bunch of data points together and perhaps, <laughs> you know, create an insight out of that. But a single data point, I mean, everybody, you know, has access to, well, not everybody, but a lot of people have access to Mintel reports or Iconoculture or Yankelovich, you know, these different, um, you know, massive research houses and databases where you can get a lot of data points. So if everybody has access to those things, then why don't we see more, more breakthrough work? Now, that's not to say that a data point isn't really important. It can be the initial hook mm -hmm. that gets you into an insight, or it can be the first breadcrumb in a breadcrumb trail that gets you to an insight. Um, but a data point's a data point. And it, you know, a, lot of, a lot of times, brands will find a data point and say, aha, this is the insight. Um, but no, unless you connect it to something else, you've just got a data point. Right. And on page 27, I found it very helpful. You have a list of all these things. They're all data points. And you write the insight and you cross out the word insight and just leave data. And so what, what, what would like, for example, you say the data, but a lot of people think this is an insight. Today, more households have single people than married people, or 24% uh, of Americans aged 35 to 44 would prefer to get a root canal than negotiate with a car dealer. That's data. It's not necessarily yeah. an, insoy, an insight. Insoy, or, sorry. <laughs> I like it. An insight. We're going Irish, are we? <laughs> yeah. This program just went into Ireland. Well, and I've got some listeners in Ireland. Shout out to those folks. And I've even gotten to interview some uh, Irish uh, authors. So yes, that's very important. So it's not just an observation. It's not just data. And then you write that just because something is true doesn't mean it's an insight. You write like the chapter is an insight is not a basic human truth. I explain the, the confusion that happens there. Yeah, that one can be a little bit tough because, um, you know, truth is often synonymous with insight. But again, similar to a data point, you have a truth, um, but that doesn't mean, you know, you're ready to blast off to the moon just yet. Mm -hmm. So um, there are a lot of um, basic truths that if somebody, you know, said them to us, we'd say, yeah, that's true. Now, what are we going to do with it? So in the book, I talk about, you know, people want to feel connected. 
Is that true? Absolutely, that's true. And a lot of people know that, but it's kind of like a ho-hum truth, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of the things, um, you know, to, to keep in mind is that today's insight, right? What, what is insightful today becomes tomorrow's uh, common knowledge. So you mm-hmm. constantly have to keep looking for and building new things um, that are going to, you know, approach the realm of an insight. But yeah, I mean, a, a human truth People like having fun in their free time. I don't think anybody would argue with that. But what do we do with that? And how do we take that and get to higher ground with it? Right. And I want to talk about the higher ground because I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the book. And I think there may be some people listening, thinking, oh, an insight, you know, like, are you saying I have to invent the next Airbnb or, (laughs) or the next Uber? And on page 31, you write, you don't always need an insight to make a great campaign or a new product or service innovation. And then uh, on 34, you write the bottom line, you don't always need an insight to make an impact to your business. Explain, because I think that was one of the most surprising things to read in a book about insights. Yeah. I mean, one of the alternate titles that I'd played around with was No Insights Necessary, right? Mm -hmm. Because you don't need to have an insight. And in fact, the world is full of great campaigns and great examples, uh, where, where, you know, they've come up with great ideas and it gets a lot of attention. Look at this Snoop Dogg campaign right now for the solo smokeless, uh, you know, fire pit. It's just blowing up all over the place. Um, and, and that began with this kind of interesting twist, which he started, uh, the, the, the first post in this extended campaign was, I'm giving up smoke. I'd like you to respect my privacy at this time. Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, what? Snoop is giving up smoke? That's crazy. And then the sort of bait and switch or the twist on the back end, the reveal, the punchline, if you will, was, yeah, I'm using these smokeless you know, fireplaces now. And, and so it's kind of an interesting twist. But that's just, you know, you don't, there's no insight there. It's just, what is Snoop really well known for? What could we do to twist it and then give people a punchline? Very effective. Mm-hmm. And I give some other examples in the book about, you know, Snickers, uh, you know, people get angry when they're hungry. I don't think anybody would um, argue with that. We've all been there. Now, they may have articulated it with this idea of being hangry, mm-hmm. right? But then they brought it to life through a series of campaigns that that are funny and that kind of... Um, take that truth to a new comedic level. Uh, if you remember the old campaign with Betty White, um, you know, playing football mm-hmm. because the, the person who's hangry, um, you know, just, just takes on this persona. They become kind of like a, a monster. Um, and, and so it's funny, but again, you know, it's just a basic human truth that they took and they twisted very, very effectively and have been running that campaign for years and years. But it wasn't necessarily an insight. Now, again, I, I don't want to mince words with people if they're like, no, that was an insight. You know, I'm going to say, well, it, tell me tell me how you connected the dots between all, all of these different things. Or was it a really keen observation, a really well-observed human truth, 
and then you just took it and ran with it. That is a little bit different in my opinion. Going, going back to Airbnb or some of these other um, you know, business innovations, I would say that those are predicated on a real connecting of the dots between multiple things. And I know I'm, I don't want to steal your thunder on when we get to, Hey, what is an actual insight? But you know, when they, when they connected the dots between, you know, here, 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 and here, it's right. like, Oh my gosh, we could have a whole new business model on our hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So I, I guess it's important for people to realize, you know, don't, don't beat yourself up if you don't think you have the perfect insight, but if you could do some of the things we're going to talk about, it can really be helpful, whether you're creating a new category or just trying to improve things for your, uh, for your customers. So on that same page, on page 34, there is a pyramid. And so the listener knows the Chris has provided me with a, uh, an image that we're going to include on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And I want to talk about that uh, image and I want to paint a picture for the listener because this is an audio only <laughs> show. Visualize a pyramid divided into three horizontal parts. And at the bottom of the pyramid, uh, where it's widest, the bottom third are the, the tactics. And moving up to the middle of the pyramid, the slightly smaller area, the middle third, is uh, strategies. And at the top are insights. So if you would, explain how easy or difficult it is for your competition for them uh, at the, at the bottom and the middle at the and the top of the pyramid because I think this might help people understand the competitive advantage of having insights. Yeah, absolutely. So insights being at the top, I'm going to stop, start at the top of the pyramid. Okay. So insights are almost impossible to copy because think of it as like it's your secret sauce. Not only have you identified the key dots, you've identified, you know, a particular trend that's happening. You have had a personal observation about something related to that trend. You have some other data uh, that you've, you know, been accumulating over many months of research and, and you put it all together and you articulate it into this insight. And that's going to be probably pretty unique to you. I mean, one of the great things about insights is that you and I can be presented with the same data. Uh, we can both agree on what trends are happening in society. Now, our personal observations may be where we get to some really unique places because you live your life, I live my life, we go to different places, we observe different things. But when we connect all those things together, you may come up with a completely different insight than mine. And that doesn't mean that it's any less valuable or that it's any less effective. Now, where the rubber meets the road is when you start briefing your creative teams and, you know, somebody shares their articulation of an insight and the teams are just off and running, right? So that is where a, a value equation does start to take shape. Um, but the insights are, are unique um, and almost impossible to copy. Again, it's like your secret sauce. Mm -hmm. And out of that, comes the strategies and come some tactics. Again, they're all born from the insight. So a lot of brands will rush when it's brainstorm time, they'll rush into tactics. And tactics are fairly easily copyable. We've seen many brands, and I talk about this in the book, you know, if somebody says, hey, how are we going to increase sales? Okay, well, here, here are your usual suspects in terms of uh, tactics that many brands have employed to increase sales quickly. So what's unique about that? Nothing. 
those tactics become commoditized very quickly. But insights, because they're kind of held close to the chest, uh, you know, they're going to they're going to provide a lot of fuel for a long time. Um, and so that's that's the difference between insights, uh, strategies and tactics there. Right. And a great line in the book is when you say most brainstorms are trying to answer a simple question with a tactical answer. Very mm-hmm. interesting. Let's go to the next one, which is uh, revealing. A lot of researchers will use the word insights when they're talking about trends. Shame on them. They should know better. Trends are just a collection of data points wrapped up in pithy one-liners. So <laughs> explain why, why, again, why a trend is not exactly an insight. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as, as you just read, I mean, a trend really is a collection of data points and that's, that's useful, uh, to know what the collection of data points, you know, comes out to be. But, you know, as I, as I end up saying in the book, more millennials are going vegan. That's a trend that's undeniable. Um, there's a lot of data out there that would indicate that. Um, but again, if everybody can see it, it's probably not an insight. Right. Right? It's good. It's good to know. It's good to follow mm-hmm. the trends, right? So, and then another one: young people are buying fewer cars today compared to ten years ago. Also true. Now, mm-hmm. why is that? Because you know people are using Uber and Lyft. Um, people are living in more uh, downtown areas where maybe there's more public transportation. Um, there, there can be a lot of reasons for that. That's mm-hmm. the trend, but we have to go underneath the trend and ask. Why is that happening? What's really going on here? And when you ask that question, I mean, that's one of the techniques, but keep asking why that's going to get you closer to an insight. But the thing that you see on the surface, everybody else can see what's on the surface. So it's like, okay, got it. Give me something deeper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to play the audio from a commercial uh, for which I was not the uh, inspiration. Uh, A lot of people ask me that. He is the life of parties he has never attended. If he were to punch you in the face, he would have to fight off the strong urge to thank him. Sharks have a week dedicated to him. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer those Zaki's. Stay thirsty, my friends. Chris Kocek writes, I have no doubt that the most interesting man in the world from Dos Equis is full of insights, but that line in and of itself is not an insight. One of the hallmarks of an insight is how simple and concise it is, which may very well be why so many people mischaracterize a catchphrase or a tagline as being insightful. So clear it up. You explain why an insight is not a tagline, a jingle, a slogan, or a catchphrase. Yeah. I mean, I love that ad. I'm so glad you played that. I miss, I miss the most interesting man in the world, but he had a good run, probably a decade, maybe mm-hmm. even 15 years. Um, but, and, and in fact, that ad is actually, there's three things, there are three lines going on in there that play off each other so well. The most interesting man in the world, right? Um, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dos Equis. And then the third thing is stay thirsty, my friends. So one of the things I love in that ad is that the most interesting man in the world would never only drink beer. 
Right? <laughs> right. And that, that little bridge line is like kudos to Dos Equis, kudos to the team or teams that came up with that and approved that because, you know, most brands, they always just want to talk about themselves. They believe that every single thing that you do is with them in mind, right? Like brands are um, a little narcissistic, I guess you could say, right? Think about me and only me all the time. And so that line, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dos Equis. It really deepens the idea of the most interesting man in the world. But again, I don't think that those lines are necessarily insights. Um, they're, they're clever catchphrases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you and I could think of a whole bunch. I, I mentioned some other ones in the book, Got Milk. That one's been used and abused and people are probably so tired of it by now, but it's been used for everything. You know, got milk, got weed, got lights. I saw a truck the other day that said, got lights. And I wanted to put it on, on LinkedIn and be like, copywriters who I know, let's help this person with a little bit better, you know, tagline. Was it a lighting company? It was a lighting company, but you know, but it's like got lights. Yeah, I've got lights. End of conversation, right? Yeah, it's the bottom so, of that pyramid, which is really easy to copy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, so there are some great lines out there, um, and they through just sheer repetition they get stuck in our heads. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're an insight. And so it, it's it's nuanced, but we've got to be able to differentiate between the two. Right now, you mentioned the word idea there. Let's wrap up this part. The last part is an insight is not an idea. (laughs) Explain the confusion there. Yeah, this is probably the most controversial one because um, an insight, okay, an insight is technically an idea. I mean, everything is an idea, but the diff, but an idea is not necessarily an insight. So what I talk about there is that we could have a brainstorm right now for a brand. We could come up with a bunch of tactical ideas, right? And in like, a how can we increase traffic and generate more sales? Exactly. <laughs> which exactly. You, which you have in the book. That's the prompt that usually kills insights, right? Because people are in such a panic about increasing sales right now. I need, I need more sales tomorrow. I need, I need more sales to close this quarter because we've got a report we've got to put out there for everybody. And, and we jump straight to the tactics. Yes, we jump straight to the tactics. It's understandable, but that that triggers our fear-based brain. And I'm trying to help people trigger their frontal lobes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so you know, we're 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 driven by fear a lot of times in these meetings because we got it, we need it yesterday, and so everybody jumps into tactical idea mode. And again, you can come up with some great tactics under those kinds of conditions. And there have been a lot of campaigns that that do well with certain tactics, but an idea is not the same thing as an insight because ideas tend to be a little bit shallow, a little bit surface level. And again, one of the core characteristics of an insight is that it's going to be deeper. We've mm-hmm. got to go deeper than the shallow stuff. And that's why insights are different from ideas. Okay, so I want to transition to the latter part of the book here where we talk about some of the techniques. But first, I want to quote from page 52 where you write that, We can all agree now what an insight is not. It's not a single thing. It's not a catchphrase. It's not a single data point. It's not a trend. It's not an observation. An insight is more complex than that. It's a combination of things. Even though it may be something that's hidden in plain sight, it's not exactly something that you find. I believe a true insight is something that you build. 
explain what you mean when you say that an insight is something that you build. Yeah. It took me a while to really think about this. I mean, an insight's a little bit like a riddle, right? It, it's, it's something that is hiding in plain sight. And many times when somebody says their articulation of the insight, you're like, oh my gosh, that's so true. I've seen that uh-huh, a million uh-huh. times and I've never, but I've never articulated in the way that you just articulated it. And so, so that articulation process is a building process and, and building insights is, um, I believe it's a creative and it's a very collaborative process. Now you may go off into your corner and, and think about things and write and rewrite and rewrite. But at the end of the day, you have to bounce your, your, your insight articulation off of somebody else. And they may help you tighten it up or put a particular word in there that is a much more precise and meaningful word compared to the word that you had in there. And so the building process makes it a creative act as well, Mm -hmm. right? So when you find something, if you just stumble on an insight, um, I feel like, well, anybody could just stumble on something. Um, and again, they'll stumble on an idea, they'll stumble on a human truth, they'll have an observation. But the insight is something that's much more collaborative, much more active and creative. And I think that's part of what makes it fun, is it's not just an accident. Right. And I think there are actually, there, there are, it's, uh, having read your book, uh, I think that there are ways that you can actually be more productive <laughs> and not rely on stumbling upon things, but go in and find them or build them. Let me mm-hmm. quote your, uh, your definition on page 53 is, an insight is a constellation of data points, observations, and human truths coming together to solve a particular problem and inspire a new product design, business model, or innovative marketing campaign that gives your brand a long-term competitive advantage. So let's talk about some of the techniques for building uh, insights. The first one is page uh, 81. Keep asking why. Keep asking why. <laughs> it just seems so simple. And it reminds me of my childhood, of course. Uh, I had a, a book on the show recently, uh, uh, Discover Questions by Deb Calvert. And we <laughs> it was all about asking questions. I- explain w- what you mean by asking why, because I think that could be kind of a you know, a broad uh, understanding of what it is or misunderstanding. And, and why is it not done more? Yeah, well, I'll start with why it's not done more. And I think it's because there, there's a couple things going on there. One, uh, everybody in the room, when you're working on a particular campaign or, or coming up with innovation ideas, I think everybody in the room, you know, is there and there's, there's some ego, there's the belief that, hey, I'm, I'm supposed to be an expert here. Right, right. right. And nobody wants to fess up or, or seem like the person who doesn't know a lot of stuff. So um, when it's not you a ask problem why, for me, but I, I'm an exception. Yeah. <laughs> when, but, but, you know, Larry King, actually, there's a wonderful uh, interview with Larry King where he talks about somebody's interviewing him and he talks about his technique, which he says, look, I ask what seems like some of the most basic questions because I'm trying to get it to that level of a five-year-old. I just want someone to explain to me. And and if you remember the movie Philadelphia, Denzel Washington has that great line, explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old, maybe a seven-year-old or something like that. 
All right, explain this to me like I'm a two-year-old, okay? Because there's an element to this thing. I just cannot get through my thick head. But in order to understand what's going on, you've just got to like reduce it down. And, and, and the whole explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old is so important because we don't realize how many assumptions we have built um, that we, you know, go through life with as adults. And kids don't have all of those layered assumptions. So they'll ask why to everything you say. And it gets, you know, for any parent, it can get a little bit annoying uh, if, if you're trying to achieve something. And that's the other thing. Adults are always trying to achieve something. We've got a goal. We've got one hour to brainstorm a bunch of ideas. We don't have time for these silly why questions. We're looking for action. We're looking for tactical ideas. But And so that pressure... I think is one of the reasons why people don't ask why in meetings as much, but it's those kinds of questions that get us back into that childlike state that get us to get rid of a lot of our assumptions or unlearn the things that we've learned where we say, Oh, we know better. We know what's really going on here. And what insight building is all about is figuring out what is really going on here underneath the surface. And so, you know, one of my favorite questions in this list of questions under keep asking why is, um, why don't bakers make bagel holes like donut holes and call them bagel balls? (laughs) I mean, it's absurd, but like, you know how much PR you'd probably get if, if you ran with that idea of bagel balls. Yeah. And nobody's done that. Not as far as I know. Well, I mean, like one of the questions on there was, um, why do you have to go to the store to try on glasses? I mean, somebody at Warby Parker perhaps asked that question along the way. Yes, absolutely. Uh, So they did ask that question. A lot of businesses have asked that question now in this era of augmented reality or virtual reality. People are asking that all the time. So technology uh, paired with these why questions can often be a really powerful jumpstart to, to getting closer to an insight. And that's one thing I, I do want to make clear to everybody, which is that these techniques will get you closer to an insight. Mm-hmm. Each category, each consumer situation, you've got to build the insight for yourself. So I know a lot of times people are like, okay, you know, give me the insights, Chris, <laughs> right? right? We're on this podcast. Yet? Yeah. Any insights yet? Where, where are the insights? I, I, lo- I listened to that marketing book podcast. <laughs> Didn't walk away with one single insight. And it reminds me of this time when I, I was at UT and the Dalai Lama came to speak. And we filled up, you know, this, this huge, you know, auditorium space and he talked and I think that there were some people afterward who were like, I don't know that I feel enlightenment yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's like, well, you had this, you had the Dalai Lama talking for about an hour and he said a lot of really profound things, but it's, it's your job to go back and take those and dig deeper and find out what they mean to you and then connect the dots with a bunch of other things. And then you might have an insight on your hands, you know? Yeah. So this so, isn't um, a recipe book in case anybody's wondering. That's right. That's exactly right. It's not a recipe. <laughs> right, right. Well, let's go to uh, the next one. And I couldn't, it's about creating conflict and uh, I can't resist. I, I wanted to play this audio from a Saturday Night Live fake commercial that had Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, and the late Gilda Radner. New shimmer 
is a floor wax. No, new shimmer is a dessert topping. It's a floor wax. It's a dessert topping. It's a floor wax, I'm telling you. It's a dessert topping, you cow! Hey, 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 calm down, you two. New shimmer's a floor wax and a dessert topping. <laughs> Spray some on your mop and some on your butterscotch pudding. Mmm, tastes terrific. And just look at that shine. But will it last? Hey, outlasts every other leading floor wax two to one. It's durable and it's scuff resistant. And it's delicious. <laughs> sure is. Perks up anything from an ice cream sundae to a pumpkin pie. Made from an exclusive non-yellowing formula. I haven't even touched my pudding and I'm ready for more. But what about black heel marks? Dirt, grime, even black heel marks. Wipe clean with a damp cloth. Oh, sorry, honey. I'll clean that up. Oh, no problem, sweetheart. Not with new shimmer. <laughs> new shimmer for the greatest shine you ever tasted. So, Chris, explain how creating a dividing line to create some healthy conflict can lead to an insight. Yeah, so this is uh, one of my favorite techniques, but it is also, it's tricky. So you've got to be careful if you deploy this technique because... So you're saying things could get out of hand. Things can get out of hand. And if you're a moderator of a focus group or if you're trying to guide an online conversation to get to something deeper, um, then you're going to have to be careful how you moderate. Because we live in a society where there's no shortage of opinions, right? And... Uh, and social media, you know, social media is is just a tool like anything else, but it does tend to skew toward conflict. The algorithm wants engagement. It wants you to stay on the platform as long as you possibly can. Why? Because if you're on the platform, they can serve you ads, right? Right, right. So, so the algorithm and the medium itself... Uh, lends itself toward um, conflict and uh, people getting into arguments mm-hmm. and people who know how to use social media in, in perhaps one of, you know, sort of a terrible way, but it's kind of like the shock jock approach. I'm going to put a grenade out there, an incendiary comment. I'm going to put it out there and let's just see how many people talk about it and for how long and let the debate run its course. So debates is another way, you know, start a debate, start a conflict where you're getting people to talk about things. And it's so important. One of the reasons like in a focus group setting, why if you can create some friendly conflict or a little bit of conflict is people let their guards down. Emotion is where we're trying to go with advertising because we want people to feel something. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this whole thing I talk about, which is rational reasons to believe, irrational reasons to believe. And we want people to get to that irrational place because it's the irrational place where they, they really start um, to get to some new ideas. Talk about the, uh, I think it's Vital Farms, your, your, mm-hmm. uh, your client, what, what they did there. That was interesting. Yeah, so Vital Farms, it's a it's a pasture-raised egg company, and their whole thing or you know kind of a big a big line for them was calling bullshit on the cage-free egg industry. Um and they have a, a wonderful um anthem spot uh which was de- developed by Preacher. 
Um, and and the, the line is, when it comes to eggs, there's a whole lot of clucking that doesn't mean much of anything. Let's, let's step back, though. Explain cage-free and what the perception People think of cage-free as free-range, and it's not at all the same thing, right? That's right. So there's three different tiers. There's cage-free, free-range, and pasture-raised. Ah, okay. And what Vital Farms wanted to do was to create a little bit of a villain in their in their story. And that, that villain is um, sort of the, the mistruth or the misperception that cage-free and free-range are the same thing as pasture-raised. So, you know, these terms, they don't really mean anything. And, and what ended up happening, what Vital Farm started to do was look at what does cage-free actually mean? You know, just means they're not in a cage. Well, but you, you write here that cage-free hens are indoors their entire lives, and they mm-hmm. get about one square foot of space per hen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it got my attention and when, I, when I saw that. And I just thought, oh, wow. It's like they, they kind of... They're sort of blowing up the narrative uh, for yeah. that whole cage-free uh, concept. Yeah, exactly. And and again, you know, if you if you just came out with sort of the rational, hey, look, here's um, you know one square foot versus a hundred and eight square feet. Yeah, you're talking about data points, data points. People are you know kind of there's not an emotional hook there, right? But the way that they did it with this campaign was they were able to twist it, which makes me think of the Dan Aykroyd, uh, John Candy scene, since you played Dan Aykroyd. Now what are you up to? What does it look like I'm up to? Well, it looks like you're wanking your crank. I'm trying to build a fire, all right? You might as well pour ice cubes in there. You never get a fire going that way. You don't crumple a newspaper up. You twist it. Twist it. Lengthwise. Just simulate kindling. That's the way you get it gone. The, from the great outdoors, you twist it. You twist it. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that scene when they're trying to start a fire? Oh, I don't think I've seen that. Now I got oh, something to do this weekend. Yeah, yeah, the Great Outdoors. It's a it's a classic uh, comedy from quite quite a while ago. Oh, okay. But but they're trying to make a fire, and and Dan Aykroyd, you know, insists that you can't just pile logs on top of each other. You got to take the 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 starter um, paper. The newspaper and stuff, and you got to twist it. And that's actually, I mean, that's true with, with insights as well and taking the truth of a situation and twisting it around and seeing it from a different angle and, and coming up with something that nobody else has seen before. Well, let's talk about reframing the question. I thought this was really interesting. You write, uh, to get to the promised land of insights, you have to be like a talented politician. You have to take the question that you've been asked and reframe it into something that gets you to a higher ground so that you can focus on the real problem at hand. Explain what you mean by, by reframing the question. Yeah, so um, the, one of the examples I use in the book, which is actually um, from uh, uh, another author, uh, Tina Selig, she has a book called Ingenious, A Crash Course on Creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, she sums it up brilliantly. She says, what is the sum of five plus five? That's one framework, right? Mm-hmm. And the answer, of course, is 10. What two numbers add up to 10? Well, when you frame the question that way, now you have a lot more options because nine plus one, eight plus two, three plus seven, four plus six, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So there's a lot of different answers that can come out of a situation depending on how you frame it. Now, that's, a, that's an easy mathematical concept. Um, 
but you know, deeper in the book or, or in that section, you know, talking about um, metaphors, looking at the metaphors that you're using to frame a question is going to dictate the answer that you come up with at the end of the, of the conversation. So you really have to be careful what words and what metaphors you use to frame the question to, you know, get you going in, in the right or a better direction. Mm-hmm. That's where you talk, I believe that's where you talk about interrogate the language. Yeah, that's, uh, that is, that is the, the next uh, piece that comes out of framing the question, because um, looking at, at the language that you're using is, is super important. Yeah, simple questions can be loaded with hidden assumptions. And I want to quote from, um, I think it's the same part, where you talk about the next time someone accidentally or intentionally tries to trap you in a particular framework by asking you how you're going to generate more sales, mm. you can start to shift the framework by saying something like this. Now, listen carefully, listener. That's a great question. I have a few ideas, but before I share them, let's see what we know about our customers first so that we can reach them more efficiently and talk to them more effectively, which should ultimately help us maximize sales. <laughs> that was solid gold. <laughs> oh, it's back to that point we, we talked about earlier, which is, hey, quick, give me a tactical idea for generating more sales. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, just sort of the, the panic situation. You're, you can be like a deer in the headlights mm-hmm. when, when somebody is bearing down on you with this question. You're like, I, I barely know anything about the situation yet. So you're going to have to give me a little bit of time. And I think that goes back to something you were asking earlier, which is, you know, why don't more people ask why questions? Why don't more people do some of these things? And, and again, there's the pressure piece. Um, but I think that um, it takes a little bit of time, you know, to build an insight. Nobody wants to admit that. People want things now. And you do need a little bit of time to think. And that's another thing is that thinking is work. I hope that people, uh, clients and marketers and, and everybody understands that thinking is work. That's why I hate it doing it. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, when you see somebody, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you work in advertising. That must be easy, huh? <laughs> and it's, it, you're, you're thinking about things. You're, you're kind of on the outskirts too. A lot of times is because, you know, somebody will, will uh, ask a question and, you know, you want to give a thoughtful answer to it, but there's just no time. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned uh, the outskirts that that's related to one of the other techniques of, um, Look at the periphery, where mm-hmm. it's again back to quick, Chris. We got to generate more sales right now. What are we going to do? I want you to talk about this. I want to quote from pages one twenty two and one twenty three, where you write: Most of the time, businesses want to talk about themselves, but if you're trying to find something insightful, chances are you'll have to look beyond the internal data that the business is providing. And then on the next page, you write: It may seem counterintuitive. But if you want to get closer to an insight about a particular subject, you sometimes have to ask questions that take you further away from the subject at hand. Talk about carpet stains. When it comes to, to carpets, let's say you, you're, you're Stain Master or you're, you're some you know, carpet brand and you want to highlight how your, your carpet is extremely stain resistant, um, you know, most of the time... Um, the way that most brands will approach things, it's a, they'll say, you know, let's talk about our carpets. Let's talk about the technology. Let's talk about the chemicals that we use. <laughs> right. It's all about us, 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 us. 
And if you want to really connect with your customer, you need to understand them, 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 mm-hmm. right? So, so you need to understand what does a stain mean to that person? And so I have this, uh, this visual in the book, which has carpets in the center, because that is, of course, what you're selling. But this idea of looking at the periphery is going out in these concentric circles. So you've got carpets, you've got carpet care, you've got family relationships, and then you've got feelings of guilt. And feelings of guilt is a very rich emotional territory for a brand to uh, start a story that, that, you know, talks about carpets and, and stains. I should add that Chris Kochik worked at BBDO New York. And back in the day, I don't know if they still do, they had the DuPont account. And I can remember they ran Super Bowl ads for DuPont Stain Master. So it's all coming together here. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of useless information stored in my mental hard drive. Nothing important, of course, but just, you know, I'm, I'm connecting the dots here. You see how I'm building what I think is an insight? It's not an insight. But that's probably one of the hardest things to do. No, we need to talk about ourselves. We're going to talk about ourselves. We're going to talk about our chemicals. We're going to talk about how we make it. They don't care. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's mentioned all the time about how people don't buy the drill bit. They buy the hole. Mm, yes, absolutely. So I'm sure you've heard that uh, many, many times. Well, let's jump to another one, which is um, find the contradiction. Right When you look more closely at contradictions, you may find some surprising things which can bring you closer to an insight you're looking for. Explain what you mean by a contradiction. Yeah, contradiction is is kind of close to conflict, but it's just a little bit different. Um, you know, there are, uh, again, using truths in the culture. So um, I've got a, a section in the book on page 140, which is, you know, which one is true. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want something done, you've got to do it yourself. Versus, if you want something done, you should outsource it. Which one's true? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're both true, actually. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of a trick question. Um, one of my, another one in there is good things come to those who wait. Does anybody remember that tagline from a particular ketchup brand? Ah, I, I, rem- <laughs> I know that line. I, I'd forgotten that it was, it was it Heinz. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was, a, that was an old Heinz ketchup. You talk about things that are stuck in your brain. I mean, I've got so many taglines and jingles mm-hmm. stuck in my brain. Um, but good things come to those who wait versus good things come to those who take charge. So. You say when you look more closely at the contradictions, you may find some surprising things. So, take us on a give us an example of um, how contradictions could could point us towards an insight. Yeah, so contradictions are full of potential energy, right? So, if you've got things on polar opposites, then you're going to be more likely when when you pull on each of those polar opposites. There's this tension in the center between those things that's full of potential. Could this you know, be like we, uh, the 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 pineapple on pizza <laughs> argument? Have you yes. been? That seems to be something that everyone's talking about, and they, people are taking stands. Oh yeah, yeah. So that that that's where the create conflict and find the contradiction um, really do can can kind of merge together just a little bit. But but finding the contradiction is really a little bit more about uh, you know finding tension, 
as well, right? So there's mm. cultural tensions, there's finding contradictions, there's there's finding things where people, um, again, this idea that both of those statements are true, but they're true at different times. So you use the contradictions to go deeper and say, when is this true versus when is this true? You know, we did a, um, with at Gallant, I worked with um, a baby food brand where we did some focus groups with some uh, young moms or, or, you know, new moms who, um, you know, they said, oh, I always buy organic for my babies, always. And we were doing what was called friends and family focus groups. So we were doing them in somebody's home as opposed to just like a nondescript, oh, nondescript room, you know, with a two-way mirror. So that way people were able to be a little bit more comfortable, sit on sofas, relax, talk about things. And, and a lot of moms are like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I buy only organic too. And I use that moment to, to say, oh, do you mind if we take a look uh, in your pantry or in your refrigerator? Let's see what some of the things are. Now, it's not to call it, them It was out. all Twinkies, right? It wasn't Twinkies, but they did have various items. They had some, some goldfish in there. They had some other, you know, products that were not necessarily organic. And it wasn't in an effort to catch them or have a gotcha moment or anything like that. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to understand, A, what are their blind spots? Um, because they, they perceive themselves as I only buy organic for my babies. Okay. Well, what are the situations when you don't buy organic for your babies and why, what there's always a, a light switch in our heads where things turn on and they turn off. And that's true of everybody. Um, and so what are the situations when that's happening? And that's what finding the contradiction is all about. Um, and using that to get into more insightful territory. I mean, I love the, the Lay's do us a flavor campaign mm -hmm. and I, ded I dedicate several pages to, to highlighting how there were lots of conflicting data points. So, you know, flavor is the number one consideration when you're buying a snack. That's what people look for. Uh, the most. Uh, number two, people are afraid to buy new or unusual flavors. People are risk averse. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that seems uh, a little bit tough. You know, oh, should we come out with a new flavor? Yeah, maybe, but uh, people are afraid of new flavors. Um, another, another contradicting point, new or unusual flavors get people talking on social media. So the weirder the flavor the more people are going to talk about, it. well, that's a good thing. <laughs> like pineapples people. on pizza. <laughs> like pineapples on pizza or getting uh -huh. people to say, you know, if you eat pineapple on pizza, you know, you're crazy. Oh yeah. Well, you know, and then, and then, and then the debate starts. Um, and then finally, unusual flavors are unlikely to sell at scale and are a major risk when it comes to new product launches. All four of those things have a little bit of tension with each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And But Lay's, with their Do Us a Flavor campaign, did a wonderful job of bringing those, those conflicting or contradicting data points, data points, sorry. I usually, I usually say data because Star Trek uh, made me think of the word data. Well, you know, it's data. interesting you say that, Chris, because I have interviewed, I think, uh, three different authors from the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. and they say data, mm -hmm. and all three of them, in fact, one of them wrote a book on Insights. All three of them made a point of saying, now we pronounce it differently here. And it's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> there are a number of words we all pronounce differently. 
Mm-hmm. So it's, this is becoming like a a, a subplot here on here on the Marketing Book Podcast, and it's, it and it's creating tension, and it's creating a contradiction. No, I'm, I'm sorry. It is. No, you're right. You can <laughs> add, so so going back to creating a conflict. By the way, I didn't I didn't mention this, but and I don't say it in the book. So a little value add here. Oh, so this is a Marketing Book Podcast extra. Everyone's about to hear. Exactly. Okay, perk up, folks. If you want to create conflict, just create a sentence where the word or is in the middle of the sentence. Is it data or data? Uh-huh. Is it tomorrow or tomorrow? <laughs> right. Is New York City pizza better or Chicago deep dish? Oh, now those are fighting words. <laughs> That's right. And and then there's a third one that people might be like neither, it's Detroit. Oh. It's all about it's all about Detroit. So Yeah. So again, you get people um, talking about things that they're passionate about, and they're more likely to reveal something that's deeply personal or emotional. And that's where you want to go as a marketer. You want to uncover the truth of the situation, not just some canned response. Right, right. Well, let's go to this last one, which kind of takes us back to the first one, which is ask what if more often. You're right. If asking why is the root of motivation, then asking what if is the root of imagination, because that's what insights are really all about. And you write, I know that in boardrooms and business meetings, what-if questions can seem like a waste of time, but asking what-if questions can often be one of the most effective ways to get people to break out of their comfort zones and come up with disruptive new ideas. So is the reason why we don't hear more what-if you know, in searching for insights, pretty similar to why people don't ask why more often? There are some similarities for sure, but I think also the what if questions seem whimsical, you know, for, for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, like what, what if, if what this? if people didn't have to come into the store to buy glasses? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. or razor yeah. blades. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And and although both of those questions led to, you know, major business innovations. Um, I think also you've got cost factors, you've got legal teams, you've got a variety of people who are sitting around the table saying, here's why it won't work. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So when you ask what if, before you can even get the rest of your sentence out, you've got five different people giving you their reasons why that won't work. But, you know, one of the examples I give when I give talks around the country is, um, it's one of my favorites, is um, years ago... Uh, a couple of guys um, came up with this idea for this um, sleeping sleeping bag that was like the Tauntaun sleeping bag from Star Wars. Hmm. So if you remember in Empire Strikes Back, when Luke is freezing on the planet Hoth um, and uh, he's about to die and Han Solo comes along and, and the, the Tauntaun has died because it's so cold. And Han Solo takes the lightsaber and cuts open the Tauntaun and sticks him in there. Mm. And he says, look, it, it stinks. It's terrible. It smells terrible, but it'll keep you warm. Okay. And these guys, you know, all these years later, they were like, wouldn't that make for a really cool sleeping bag? <laughs> like, what if, we, I mean, what was the sleeping bag? It's just, it's just cloth and, and material. So what if we put a print on it and made it look like a, a, a you know, a Tauntaun? And so, so they, they put it out there as like an April fool's joke, I think. And then somehow along the way, George Lucas got wind of it and was like, yeah, go ahead and make it. You can make me more money. Let, let go. Let's license it. And so they made the sleeping ton, uh, sorry, the Tauntaun sleeping bag. And, um, 
you know, that's just a, it's a great what if question. And same thing you mentioned razor blades. Well, what if innovation in the razor blade category isn't just adding more blades? What if we innovated in a different direction, which is this subscription-based model? You know, razor blades are light. You can put them in the mail just like a Netflix DVD. Mm-hmm. So, And they're a know, hassle to buy in the store because they're usually locked up. Mm-hmm. They're locked up. Um, they they're more expensive, be, yeah. Mm-hmm, they're more expensive. So for all these reasons. So he looked at... Um, you know, the, the razor blade category, the shaving category, and said, let's look at different levers that we can pull. And again, different technologies had come along. I don't think you could do this 30 years ago. But with the internet and, and you know, ease of purchase and subscription-based models, for all of those reasons, it was its time. Um, but why didn't Gillette get to that idea first, right? Because they were so locked in to a particular perspective or a particular view on what innovation looks like, that they missed the changing dynamics in the culture, among consumers, and 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 the complaints among consumers. Man, why am I, you know, spending so much on these razor blades? And again, in their anthem spot for Dollar Shave Club, they poke fun at that and say, why are you spending $20 on razors when 19 of it goes to Roger Federer? <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, and I can imagine people sitting around that table saying something like, "Well, our our, our retail partners would kill us if, mm-hmm. if we tried to do that. We just can't. We can't do it." I mean, so mm-hmm. almost almost in fairness to Gillette, they're just like they were painted into a corner. Absolutely, absolutely. So there are a lot of reasons, not just that you know people didn't have those ideas, or probably people who had those ideas at Gillette, but then there were a lot of other forces at play. Um, you know, that said, no, we can't do that. I mean, look at Kodak. I'm sure Kodak That's just actually, what I was thinking. Yeah, they yeah. invented the digital camera. Exactly. But then what were they going to do? They, they were in the film business. They were in the film business. They were in the paper business. Mm-hmm. And so they looked at that as, as a, all they could see were threats. Yes. And, and so, you know, that's, that's the hardest thing. Like as a planner, as a strategist, when you're digging for insights and you're asking challenging questions, you are challenging the status quo. And a lot of people, believe it or not, this is a shocker, but people don't necessarily like being challenged, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Clients, CEOs, CMOs, account directors, chief creative officers, executive creative directors, you go into a room, you've got to be very diplomatic and delicate about challenging their perspective on the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons is a lot of egos. In the yes. Room. And this plays beautifully into the last thing I want to ask you about the book, which is uh, the very end. You write, you have an insight. Now what? Congratulations. After steeping yourself in data, trend reports, and your own personal observations, and after using different techniques to build insights, asking why and what if questions, creating conflict and focus groups, and finding subtle nuances and contradictory data points, you finally have an insight, an absolutely game-changing, campaign-worthy, category-disrupting, business-building insight or at least you think you do, you've double-checked your insight against the checklist so you know it contains a universal human truth, it's backed by data, and it's got some tension, plus you've tightened the language down so now it's nice and pithy. You're feeling really good about it. So what should you do with it? Should you run to your client, your CMO, or your creative director and say, stop what you're doing and listen to this insight? It's going to change everything. What say you, Chris Kochek? No, absolutely (laughs) not. (laughs) Don't do that. Oh, 
Well, I get the feeling that happens a lot though, does it? Yeah, I mean, it, it all comes back to context, right? So yeah. everybody's busy, everybody's doing the things that they're doing, and you've been spending all these weeks or months, you know, crafting this beautifully articulated insight. Uh-huh. But when you walk into that room, other people have to catch up to you, right? Yes. They, they, they have not, maybe they've seen the dots, but they haven't connected the dots the way that you have. Mm-hmm. And they may just not be in a particular mindset to absorb the brilliance that you're about to share with them. So you have to set them up. And that, you know, I, I, I pepper the book with a lot of uh, comic insights. And one of the things I talk about is how, you know, the setting up a joke, even if it's a short setup, is really important to get someone in that frame of mind for the punchline. And the shortest joke setup that I know of is knock knock, right? <laughs> right. So if you, if you don't use knock, knock to set someone up and all you do is give them the punchline, they're like, what? <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> right. Or like the person who says, I've got a great knock, knock joke. You start it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the setup is really important, just like in a movie or I, I, I love Pixar shorts. So Pixar films are really good at establishing a world and a situation. And in fact, they have a wonderful, um, I've actually, I don't know if I've invented this game exactly, but, but um, uh, I call it the Pixar, the Pixar plot game, the what if Pixar plot game. Do you want to play it with me? I don't know that I've seen all of them. My kids are a little older now and I haven't, but yeah, let's try it. I'm sure you've seen some of them. So uh, what is the what if question at the center of Toy Story? What if the toys were lifelike? Yes. What if the toys were alive? Mm-hmm. And and I would add to that, what if they did things when we weren't looking? Because right, they always have to drop down when humans are in the space. And by the way, that creates an amazing magical tension to Toy Story when they're trying to rescue Woody from that kid, that sadistic kid who wants to blow up the toys. Mm-hmm. And then Woody like turns his head around in the exorcist sort of fashion because you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to break, I guess, the fourth wall of, of Toyland. Uh-huh. Um, what, what is the what if question at the center of The Incredibles? Have you seen The Incredibles? Uh, I have, but I can't remember it. The memory goes first, Chris. You'll see. <laughs> <laughs> what if superheroes lived among us? Oh, okay. Right, right. Right? Yeah. Right? What if, what if they lived among us? Um, did you see Finding Dory? Yes. Okay. What do you think is the what if question? No, it's Finding Nemo. This? It's Finding Nemo. You've seen Finding Nemo, but they made the sequel. Oh, I didn't see Finding Dory. Man, I, yeah. I need to get out more. Yeah, that's okay. It's a good one. <laughs> Put it on your list. For- yes. But what if a fish with memory loss had to find her parents? Which, by the way, is the same basic what if for Memento. What if somebody with memory loss had to find the killer who killed their wife. So I know, I know we're talking about, you know, selling an insight, but, but when you play the Pixar game, you, you get kind of a twofer. You get, you get a whole bunch of uh, what if questions that make you think about things in a different way and kind of get you warmed up. But then if you're thinking about and studying Pixar films or any great uh, murder mystery type film, things like that, you're going to see how do they set up the situation so that they get to the big reveal. Oh, interesting. And so the listener knows there's a whole section at the end here about how to go about avoiding the scenario 
I was describing when I was quoting from the book. In other words, how to avoid the landmines and how to uh, give some thought to the folks that you're trying to sell this to and some of the things you should do to try and give your insight a chance of, of living. So if readers took only one thing away from the book, Chris, what would you hope it would be? Uh, you don't need an insight to make great work that can have an impact. <laughs> so I know that's ironic. That's counterintuitive because here's a whole book about insights. But but what I what I do promise readers is that if you take the time to use these techniques and leverage these techniques, you will have much bigger ideas, much better ideas than if you never use the techniques in the first place. Yes. Yes. Well, as I mentioned, that was one of the parts that most surprised me and I found kind of refreshing. So what's one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book to get them thinking about it, perhaps waiting for the book to arrive? Yeah. So um, the first thing is is just all around talking to your customers and listening to your customers, listening carefully to what they're saying, but really try to understand their busy, complicated lives and then figure out how you fit in to make their lives better. So many brands start from a place of, here's what I have to offer. And I think what great brands do is they say, I can see this is where you're struggling. Here's something that might help. So so don't just ask questions about your brand or yourself, because remember, it's not about you. It's about them. Ask them questions about themselves because it's all about them. So like with, with John Deere, when I was working on John Deere, you know, sure, we could talk about John Deere and the superior materials that John Deere, you know, uses to make their, their tractors and riding lawnmowers and stuff like that. But maybe a better place to start is how do you feel about your lawn? Mm -hmm. Right. Just like with the stains, you know, yes. how do you feel about um, having guests over and there's a stain on the carpet or there's a stain on your shirt or, you know, there, there's something there. What does that make you feel? And, and again, getting to feelings, I know they're soft and squishy, uh, but it's, it's, that's the really, you know, powerful territory for getting closer to an insight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And speaking of uh, lawns, I think it was uh, Scott's or one of the seed companies said that we don't sell seeds, we sell beautiful lawns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thing that you mentioned right there is after all, gosh, nearly 500 sales and marketing books on the show, that is the most important thing for success for companies is to simply talk to customers and understand them. And as simple as it is to say that, it seems to be the most difficult thing for companies to do. Mm-hmm. Well, there, I think one of the, one of the suggestions I give to all of our clients is when you're out there pitching or selling, whether you're a B2B business or your B2C business, you should spend about 30% of the time pitching and 70% of the time learning, asking questions, letting the customer tell you their stories. You've got to give them very careful guided questions, of course, but, but I think that the listening part, it's like recon. You're just getting, you know, intelligence um, so that you can, you know, come up with a better, newer innovation so that you can have a really interesting idea for a campaign. Um, and that all comes from the, the voices in the mouths of your consumers. So true. And it's, 
equally applicable to any sales call. If you as a seller can talk 30% of the time and let the customer do 70% of the talking, you'll be more successful. And there was a book on the show recently that analyzed all this data that showed the most effective sellers actually spoke less than the less effective sellers, which tended to uh, speak more. Mm -hmm. Well, Chris, looking back, what books have most inspired your working career? I always recommend Zag by Marty Neumeyer. Uh Uh, The books that I've written, I've tried to model it off of Zag because I read Zag in under two hours, and that was perfect for me. It had lots of pictures. I like pictures. (laughs) Um, And your book, I should add, is a two-hour read. So I'm happy that that's the case. That was the goal. <laughs> I achieved that goal. And it was nicely uh, designed, too. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I love uh, Purple Cow. I think it's called Purple Cow by yeah. Seth Godin. Uh-huh. And Tribes. I mean, pretty much almost anything that Seth Godin puts out, I will I will get it. Um, Steal Like an Artist and Show Your Work by Austin Kleon. Um those are wonderful books as well. Again, they're short. They're all, almost all of the books that I love are like little pocket guides, almost. You know? Yeah. I mentioned earlier that it's all coming together, but it really is all coming together because about a week ago, I interviewed Seth Godin. And in the conversation, he mentioned that he once wrote a book on stain removal. And here we are <laughs> talking about Purple Cow and the fact that we, you, the stains and stain master and it's it's i tell you what you know i i think this will just be my last episode because i i've i've been able to tie the whole plot together so well are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading perhaps now that you have time to <laughs> read more books yeah um i did just finish reading unreasonable hospitality oh yeah by uh, by Will, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Guidara, Guidara. Um, and I love how he talks about elevating ordinary transactions into extraordinary experiences. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a fantastic book. Um, I'm in the middle of reading Rick Rubin's The Creative Act, hmm. which you, you may have seen. Uh, it's no. an amazing book. I mean, every page reads almost like a poem. It's almost meditative. He's done a fantastic job there. And then, um, I'm actually looking forward to reading a book that you recommended to me um, earlier on before we started, you know, recording, which was uh, Breakout Brands by Jared Schrieber. All right. Yeah. So um, I listened to the podcast with him, uh, your podcast, and um, I'm looking forward to that book. So you listened to an episode of this show and you were still willing to come on and be interviewed by me. I, I <laughs> yes. tell you, I've... I appreciate the hit your reputation is is clearly going to take there. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned, your company's website, your website, your LinkedIn profile. Listeners, please reach out to Chris in some way. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Let him know you heard this. Uh, guests have told me that they really enjoy hearing from listeners, particularly if they have questions or, or, or comments about the interview. And if nothing else, share this interview on you know, like LinkedIn and, and tag us so we can thank you for doing that. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Any Insights Yet? Connect the Dots, Create New Categories, Transform Your Business. The author is Chris Kochek. Chris, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. Your insight serves you well. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune.